Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Establish, brought to you by Shake Up the Establishment. We are a youth-run, nonpartisan, community-centered nonprofit that focuses on translating knowledge within various topics of climate justice to make this information more accessible to those living in what is currently Canada. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that we have the privilege of living, working, and thriving upon land that Indigenous peoples have lived and cared for and continue to do so since time immemorial. We acknowledge that our address resides on Treaty 3 land, which is the territory of the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabeweke, Attawandarok, Mississaugas, and Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. This episode is part of a larger project called Voices of the Greenbelt, consisting of five podcast episodes, a mini-documentary, and visual workshops. This project has been supported by the Greenbelt Foundation. The Greenbelt Foundation's grant and research activities are made possible by the generous support of the government of Ontario. Such support does not indicate endorsement by the government of Ontario of the contents of this material. My name is Atreyu Lewis, I use they-he pronouns, and I'm a two-spirit, transmasculine, non-binary, mixed indigenous, and racialized youth. I grew up in Toronto, and I'm now currently situated in Jojage, also known as Montreal, Quebec. I'm a public speaker, project manager, and grassroots leader with BIPOC organizations, as well as taking part in independent research on decolonizing methodologies, epistemologies, and promoting intersectionality and harm reduction. To wrap up the series, today's final episode will be a guided experience listening to nature sounds, indigenous teachings, and interesting facts about areas in the Greenbelt. Ani, welcome! In today's episode, we're going to be talking about Indigenous history, land-based, water-based teachings, as well as any Greenbelt contributions to environmentalism, and how to mindfully visit and experience nature in the Greenbelt that is decolonial and intersectional. The area we now call the Greenbelt consists of treaty lands such as Treaties of Canada, including the Niagara Purchase, Between the Lakes Purchase, Collins Purchase, Head of Lake Treaty, Toronto Purchase, Gunshot Treaty, Treaty Number 20, Sogging Treaty, Treaty Number 82, Lake Simcoe, Nottawasaga Treaty, and many more. It is important that we learn the history of the land and continued presence of these treaties because we are all treaty people. Whether we're Indigenous or non-Indigenous persons, we all have a commitment to the land and responsibility to understand the history that took place and how Indigenous peoples are situated on the land today. The lakes, rivers, and wetlands, as well as any forests, ravines, and healthy farmlands in the Greenbelt, have been stewarded and protected by First Peoples since time immemorial. The vibrant way of life of Indigenous peoples and my ancestors as well, the connection to the land has been suppressed due to attempted genocide, colonization, and assimilation. We have to acknowledge the truth of these events, the continuing effects, and the enduring rights of Indigenous peoples. The Greenbelt Foundation has a responsibility to ensure the work that they do reflects the continued efforts and rights of First Peoples on the land. The Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation is located in parts of southern Ontario and is within Greenbelt area boundaries. Prior to European contact, the ancestors of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation occupied lands north of Lake Superior and the area around Georgian Bay. The Mississaugas lived lightly on the lands they occupied, purposely moved about the landscape, harvesting resources as they became available. They're also part of the Moccasin Identifier Greenbelt Program, a program that has goals of increasing Indigenous visibility in Greenbelt regions, as well as providing heritage makers or heritage sites on significant Indigenous landmarks. The Mississaugas of the Credit occupied controlled exercise stewardship over approximately 3.9 million acres of lands, waters, and resources in southern Ontario. Their territory extended from the Rouge River Valley westward across to the headwaters of the Thames River, down to Long Point on Lake Erie, then followed the shoreline of Lake Erie, the Niagara River, and Lake Ontario until arriving back in the Rouge River Valley. The Alderville First Nation, located in Greenbelt area Oak Ridge's Moraine, the thriving community that is rich in heritage and native culture, they have nature and heritage tours available throughout the year upon request. 
The Eldorado First Nation is a part of the Anishinaabeg. They have a long history in the region of Ontario, dating back centuries through the Anishinaabeg migrations to the Great Lakes to the subsequent occupation of southern Ontario at the beginning of the 18th century. Since the Great Peace of Montreal in 1701, the Eldorado First Nation and their ancestors have been a party to events in southern Ontario that have helped to make the province what it is today. With the ratification of the 1763 Royal Proclamation at Niagara in 1764, the early treaties of the 1780s along the Lake Ontario frontier and the Williams Treaties of 1923 were significant events in Alderville's history. Alderville has also been home to the Mississauga and Anishinaabeg of the Ojibwe Nation since the mid-1830s. Before that time, people lived in their traditional islands around the Bay of Quinte, Grape Island. The Mississaugas of the Scugach Island are also located in the Greenbelt area. Government officials in history were conducting land acquisition treaties with Mississauga and Ojibwe people, and they did not understand the languages of these people or fully grasp their understandings of Mother Earth. Millions of acres of valuable native land were stolen through these treaties with very little to receive in return. The Mississaugas of Scugach Island First Nation also moved into southern Ontario from their former homeland north of Lake Huron around the year 1700. The Mississaugas are a branch of the Greater Ojibwe Nation, one of the largest native groups in Canada. From time immemorial, Mississauga people secure all their needs from the surrounding environment, Mother Earth, hunting and fishing and harvesting plant materials for foods and medicines. Wild rice, an important food staple, grows in shallow water and was gathered in late summer using birch bark canoes. The Saugeen First Nation, also located in Greenmelt area of the Niagara Escarpment along the Bruce Peninsula, they offer opportunities for hiking, fishing, and swimming. The Saugeen First Nation Amphitheater is also located in the heart of the village of Saugeen, one of the most fascinating outdoor theaters in the province. Visitors are also welcome to hike on one of the nature trails that offers a unique excursion into the unrefined beauty of the area. The Saugeen River is known for having some of the best rainbow fishing in Ontario. The Saugeen River has approximately two and a half miles of open river for fishing. You can eat all the fish you can catch. Now that we have a bit of context on the nations in the Greenbelt areas of Ontario, I'd like to share a quote with you from the book's Breeding Sweetgrass. What else can you offer the earth? Which is everything. What else can you give but something of yourself? Homemade ceremony, a ceremony that makes a home. This quote is very interesting to me because personally, when I visit these territories, even as an Anishinaabe Ojibwe person who doesn't know a lot of history of the Mississaugas, who's still on a reconnecting journey when it comes to Indigenous laws and treaties in Ontario, it really makes me step back and think, you know, even if I'm on these territories, I know that I can always be mindful that no matter where I'm visiting, no matter what the history is, I'm always going to step back and carry that, like, above thinking of, I'm in this territory, what can I offer, what can I do to practice some gratitude, to practice mindful visitation. You know, as um, also a racialized person, oftentimes I feel like I'm in the city, I'm in Toronto or Montreal, and I feel like I'm not welcome. I feel like I'm in the middle of this scheme, of this puzzle that I'm not allowed to solve, that I'm not allowed to really like get into or have the key to access. You know, when I'm stuck in an institution or I'm in Toronto just walking down the street and seeing these place names of white settlers like Dundas um, or even in Montreal, like Red Path, <laughs> you know, these, these white settlers that came here and focused on industry rather than like just understanding the island they were literally on and occupying, you know, and no matter where I'm going, no matter like 
if it's in nature, if it's somewhere very remote, or even in an urban space, you know, what can I offer today? What can I give? What can I acknowledge? You know, even nature, which is so, like, carries so much knowledge and wisdom and so much biodiversity that I don't even understand yet. Even in a space such as Toronto, where there's so much, like, construction, industrial work and business and economics and all these things um, that capitalism thrives on and colonialism thrives on, you know, what can I do to just practice visitation, mindful visitation, like to be mindful, but also to like know what territory you're on, recognize the history, and then find a way to engage in the teachings of the land in a way that's really healing, but also justice, a healing justice kind of format. You know, I'm really passionate about healing justice in that framework in my work. How can we prioritize the healing of ourselves, recognizing our stories and our purposes on Mother Earth, but also how can I, what is the one act that I can do that will give justice, that will contribute to justice? Indigenous peoples are constantly facing injustice on their territories, their own territories. And frontline work is one of the most exhausting and capacity, the highest capacity things in the movement right now. You know, people are giving their lives, people are being brutalized. And we've heard from previous guests in this episode just how brutal it is and just how stressful and painful. You know, it should not be this painful to walk on the land you come from. It really should not be this much of a struggle to just practice stewardship, caretake, and and take care of the land that you come from and that you identify with, you know? But that's sadly the reality that a lot of indigenous peoples are facing. We're also gonna be talking about outdoor experiences and off the grid experiences. So with Shake of the Establishment, Shake of the Establishment engages in a lot of climate justice work, environmentalism work, um, and a lot of us really go on a lot of trips in nature and actually, go into nature to decompress and to recharge our batteries. Um, for many people, the great outdoors goes in hand with exercising and wellness, and that's just what the Greenbelt experiences as well have to offer. Not only do they provide an opportunity for physical activity, they also promote mental health, <laughs> allowing anyone the chance to explore the beauty that this land has to offer. For example, um, I love to go camping, you know? <laughs> I still have like a ways to learn, but definitely going to places like Sybil Point Provincial Park, which is in Greenbelt Outer Boundary. It's only an hour drive from Toronto. It's located in Sutton, Ontario. You know, it's close to Lake Simcoe, access to park and hiking trails, or in proximity to Chippewa's of Georgina Island First Nation, which I used to visit all the time as a kid, because my family lived there. I was able to really reclaim space on the campgrounds as an indigenous person. You know, I previously traveled there with family and um, went, that was like my one connection, you know, a really big connection, visiting my grandmother and the family on the reserve. Um, even though I didn't live there, I didn't grow up there, it was kind of like that link, you know, from present to past, or even just present to present, you know, those present links, those present connections with the land and the family and the generational experiences here. Now I go up camping with my family and our family dog to Civil Point, um, we go for the day, like we use the facilities, um, we bring our tent, you know, we try to just take up that space and like enjoy ourselves um, up in that territory and I just really enjoy it. I really enjoy being up there and I just enjoy 
the nature around me and just grateful to be on this territory. So we also, I also went to the Six Nations of the Grand River Youth Gathering in Oshkawaiwan, Ontario. It was an hour and 30 minute drive from Toronto, 30 to 45 minutes from Hamilton, Brantford. It's in proximity to the Greenbelt area in Niagara Scarmet, but not right directly in the Greenbelt boundary. We went, um, myself and my friends, to the Climate Justice Gathering in the community to discuss Six Nations history, traditional laws, governance, land defense in proximity to Greenbelt territory. We practice gratitude and mindful visitation of the Six Nations territory as POC non-Haudenosaunee youth um, as guests in this space. We had discussions with community members in that territory who had experience with frontline work as well as Indigenous advocacy roles. We stayed in a cabin at Chiefswood Park in Six Nations. It was a really, um, I just really loved being there, you know, it was a really great accommodation. We got to understand a lot more about the lived experiences of land defenders and Haudenosaunee people um, in generations just before us, as well as current youth on the territory, on the front lines, who are Haudenosaunee. And it was just a really engaging experience, you know, being at the campfire with all these other youth, talking about indigenous issue, issues in such a, you know, empathetic, passionate way, um, such a grassroots way. I really felt like I was on the land and really engaged with the land and the teachings of that land, um, as well as being there for a more like community work purpose. You know, it was very grassroots and it was a very, very engaging, meaningful space. You know, that experience also reminded me of teachings I learned as a child in a First Nations school. And I'm going to read this passage from Dancing on Our Turtles Backs, um, a novel on indigenous teachings. So, Nanabojo is a prominent being in the Anishinaabe culture. Nanabojo teaches us lessons by never learning, representing the ordinary human struggle to live a good life. Their caste is being constantly succumbing to their own weaknesses, the consequences of which are demonstrated in many stories. Nanabojo is a powerful teacher, first teacher, the first researcher, the offspring of prophet spirits, who is raised and influenced by Nokomis. They have vast number of gifts to the Anishinaabe people and have done large amounts of balancing. They're often called the elder brother in English. So Nanabajo really demonstrates kinship with each other and kind of the affections that exist between us as well. As uh, the book states, you know, Nanabajo is kind of, to be honest, a character I aspire to be. You know, someone who is engaged with the environment around them. As a non-binary masked person, Nanabajo is often depicted as a masculine um, person, even a genderless person. And I just really relate to the way that Nanabojo um, engages with, you know, in the creation story when he's talking to the animals around us, you know, the animals in the story and the spirit beings there, you know, and how Turtle Island is created and how Muskrat sacrifices themselves. It's a whole huge story and I would definitely look more into it and read, like, look into that story. It's a really big story. And it just reminds me of how, you know, as a non-binary trans mask indigenous person, I'm very committed to understanding the world around me better in the means of biodiversity, environmentalism, and that life is intersectional and that there are many pathways to finding healing and justice and finding um, connections with nature. And Nanabojo is someone who really advocates for that, you know, that kinship and that understanding of the world in many, like, very various ways. Speaking of engaging in nature, another huge thing I love to do, I love to paddleboard. So I go to a cottage in Jackson's Point um, it's owned by a POC a family, 
and it's run with beach access to getting out on the water right on Lake Simcoe. I actually am a surfer and I used to surf in LA recreationally twice a year before COVID. But since COVID, we've kind of had to stay closer to home, which is my home in Toronto. So I basically just take the paddleboard and go out and paddle and sit in the lake. And I do acknowledge the privilege of being able to do that. You know, being able to pay for a cottage, take up that space on indigenous soil. You know, a lot of white settlers actually do this thing called white flight, where they will rent or even buy massive cottages in rural areas. And when there's a lot of POC activism or movements going on in urban spaces, they'll take that time to literally just flee, <laughs> leave the urban space and go to their like cottage and kind of romanticize that life. And as an indigenous person, that's definitely the last thing I want to be doing, you know? So I'm also, I have really like trying to get a balance of community work in an urban space with BIPOC communities, queer trans communities as a disabled person as well and also allowing myself that time to decompress and to engage in nature in a very meaningful way, very mindful way. Another way where I did this is um, I went to this indigenous camp. We were foraging, um, we were also, we went to the caves in Harthouse Farm in Caledon, Ontario. It's located in the Greenbelt, right in the escarpment in Terracotta, Ontario. And a group of indigenous leaders, as well as non-indigenous youth, we went out to the site we went on some cultural walks, nature walks. We engaged in some community healing with like looking at the harvest there with the corn um, and even some garlic. And it was just a really nice experience to be out there with fellow POC youth and to really, um, really understand that space. It was a little scary going in the caves too, but it was definitely worth the wait. It was definitely worth the experience and being in those caves and then climbing them and then making it out alive, because they're actually pretty, like, take caution when going to those caves. You know, um, it is a very scenic experience, very immersive. And I'm just grateful to be in, like, an indigenous, indigenous camp going to indigenous, like, spaces. I am also a massive hiker. So when I'm not going to trips like cabining and camping, and I am a hiker. I love going to places in Toronto, even outside Toronto. Rouge National Urban Park is actually right in the Greenbelt as well, near the Oak Ridges Moraine. It also is home to Carolinian forests, ecosystems, home to amazing biodiversity, some of the last remaining working farms as well in the GTA. The human history there is dating back over 10,000 years, including some of Canada's oldest known indigenous sites. I think that a lot of these hiking trails really promote well-being um, and access to green spaces and urban spaces. It's just like right in the GTA, like right outside of Toronto. There's also a lot of plant medicines that can be found along those trails in those areas. I went on the Vista Trail. There was a lot of bluffs there and history of just thousands of years of climate cooling too. An area that's also not widely known, but in the Greenbelt as well, is the Glendon Forest Trail. So we went to the trail that was like right on the York University Glendon campus site. This trail goes from that university all the way to Sunnybrook Park. The piece of land that we call the Glendon Forest now was in fact cleared and used for farming between 1860 and 1920. It was replanted during the 1920s by the woods um, and today is home, it's just home to a surprising number of plants and wildlife. It also has access to the Beltline Trail, which goes right to Evergreen Brickworks. It's Canada's first large-scale community environmental center, somewhere I go very frequently when I'm in like Ontario, Toronto. It's a huge example of actually reusing the land and restoring the land and ecological processes. Um, 
it's just amazing how it used to be like a brickworks, like literally making bricks for industrial purposes, and now has several ponds, hiking trails, bluffs, marshes, and grassland. In Anishinaabemowin, the place is also referred to as the Burning Bright Point. The spelling and meaning of the name in Anishinaabemowin is still being decided on by a language circle First Nations knowledge and language carriers and allies even today. You know, the Evergreen, even though it's not directly in the Greenbelt area, it's so close in proximity and it just, I just feel so like immersed in nature and scenery when I'm there. Um, very decompressing, very healing. I've done lots of mindfulness journals there. I've gone even to lo like the lookout, you know, the big top part, and even just on a lot of like mindfulness, just thinking internally as well, walking near the ponds, on the bridges, you know, on the big trails. And it's just a very amazing experience. It's definitely one of the best places I love to go when I'm like right in downtown Toronto. Some places I have actually yet to visit, but I'm really like, when learning about them, I'm so interested, are some of the key waterfalls in the Greenbelt regions. So along some of the trails, you can also enjoy a lot of waterfalls across the Niagara Escarpment, for example, popularly known for the breathtaking Niagara Falls. Hikers and cyclists alike are sure to find many smaller but equally beautiful waterfalls as well. One being the Jones Falls, located in the Potawatomi Conservation Area. It's over 12 meters over the escarpment, west of Owen Sound. You can also find plenty of trilliums in the spring. Location's excellent for just cross-country snow, snowshoeing, skiing during winter months. Admission is free, open year-round, as well as the Inglis Falls. An 18-meter high waterfall on the Bruce Trail. It showcases spectacular ice formations in the winter, beautiful cascades in the spring through fall, home to 20 species of ferns, old-growth forests with cedar trees over 600 years old. I love to forage and make cedar tea, so that just, wow, it really just blows me away even hearing about it. Also, if you're even in an urban space and you just really want to like see the city from a different lens, from an indigenous lens, a POC lens, there's tons of tours that are Greenbelt friendly within the Greenbelt, even in collaboration with the Greenbelt. There's the Indigenous Eco Tour led by Alan Cooley. They are First Nations eco educator and forager, and they do tours in Greenbelt areas such as um, Lee's Valley and High Park, which is pretty close to the Greenbelt. I went with a few other suit members and offered a traditional tobacco pouch with other medicines on behalf of suit. We learned a lot of history about the ecology, about settlers and them planting their own plants from overseas over the years. We actually learned that High Park has its own sand, like elevated sand present. We also saw native plants versus plants brought over, like I just mentioned, seasonal growth and evergreen growth, and just other teachings about plants that I really didn't know about. Um, for example, knowing the difference between like Queen Anne's Lace and Poison Hemlock, definitely very important to know, as well as just seeing an indigenous forager gathering and enjoying the nature around us. We went into the Medicine Wheel, Natural World, Creation Stories, and a lot more. If you want to go on similar tours, there's also the First Story Toronto app and bus tour. It's a grassroots community developed develop tour in the city of Toronto. It highlights Toronto's history from an indigenous perspective with the sharing of traditional knowledge, geography. It covers over 11,000 years of history. It visits sites such as the DVP, Don Valley River, High Park, Rouge Hill, Toronto Island, Fort York, and a lot more. Definitely, definitely check out these sites and these experiences in the Greenbelt if you have the chance. These amazing places would not be possible without the conserved areas they're located in. I would like to read a passage from the book The Intersectional Environmentalist. 
We can't save the planet without uplifting the voices of its people, especially those most often unheard. We should care about the protection of people as much as we care about the protection of our planet. To me, these fights are the same. As a society, we often forget that humans are a part of a global ecosystem and that we don't exist separately from nature. We coexist with it each and every day. Unfortunately, as with other animals, some humans are endangered and facing a multitude of social and environmental injustices that impact their ability to not only survive, but also thrive in liberation and joy. This passage really speaks to me as an indigenous community worker, POC, who's racialized, who's been marginalized. This book, The Intersectional Environmentalist, is written by a black feminist environmentalist based in South California. I love their work. I love the way that they phrase sustainability, environmentalism as both a social environmental issue. I really related to the way, you know, they also talked about navigating environmentalism spaces as a racialized person and how a lot of the times we see this kind of like pan-environmentalism activism where we talk about donations for wildlife funds, we talk about Earth Days, we even talk about conservation efforts. But the ongoing pattern is that it turns into a metaphor before we actually think of new ways and abolitionist ways even to approach environmentalism, to approach social justice and environmental justice as equals, and that they go along the same river and that they connect together and they're both ever flowing. This also reminds me of one of the wampum agreements in Haudenosaunee culture. One of their wampum belts focuses on, you know, two boats going down a river, never really meeting each other, never touching each other, but going down in mutual respect and just traveling together. And I feel like that's what we really need to focus on when we talk about environmentalism, as well as indigenous issues. Indigenous land rights should be prominent and should be at the forefront. However, environmentalism is often placed in the category and is often tokenized. And BIPOC voices are often going very much unheard when it comes to understanding the equities in environmentalism. BIPOC citizens, BIPOC folks, you know, we face environmental racism on a huge scale, from oil pipelines on territories um, to lack of green spaces in black communities, as well as the ongoing brutalization of land defenders across Canada, across North America, and in many other regions of the world. You know, allowing for mindful visitation of nature conservation areas with knowing the land's indigenous history, as well as the importance of protecting biodiversity in the regions, helps humans reconnect with the natural world on a social and environmental level. There's no one way to practice appreciation of nature. There's many ways to get involved in environmentalism that promotes stewardship and the challenge of industrialization in society. People can, can get involved in the concept of sovereignty of foods, plants, and natural spaces, apart from places to settle, but places to actually grow your own products someday and really become aware of your natural surroundings. You know, one of the main things I really tell people is how can you really immerse yourself into natural spaces, such as Greenbelt Trails? What can you do to continue to conserve those important natural green spaces? Whether that be volunteering in a garden or going on a hiking trip, there's many ways that you can really engage in maintain natural spaces, um, as well as promoting environmental stewardship. I would like to read a passage from the book, All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. It's true that the climate strike movement is organized and led by youth, but we need to work intergenerationally 
We want to impact every sector and every industry. To me and a lot of other young people, it feels like we're rooted in awareness while the adults around us live in obliviousness. That is so true. <laughs> you know, I've seen in environmental spaces, a lot of adults tell me, oh yeah, congratulations, you know, thank you for doing the work. But they also talk in a very like defeatist attitude and very like, not really my problem anymore. You know, in indigenous cultures, we also have the fires prophecies, you know, and that in the seventh fire, everyone will come together and, you know, recognize our differences and promote equity and protect the land and reconnect with our ancestors. Um, and I, that's really what I grew up on as well. You know, this idea that there will be a time when the youth, when everybody of every age will understand these issues. And that once you understand, everything else is going to make sense. Once you do that internal work, everything else is going to fall into place. You know, immersing yourself and engaging in that education, taking those steps back to be mindful of your spaces and your surroundings is really the first step to getting involved. You know, people can really get involved in sovereignty in so many ways. And just going into nature and connecting with your nearby indigenous community, as well as learning the treaties of the land you're on. Really learn the land you're on and be mindful um, in any space. One way to do that, go to nativeland.ca. They have a really great resource for engaging with treaties, lands, and history. Engage in the appreciation and mindfulness aspects of experiencing nature through sounds, descriptions of sites, and interesting facts about areas. Inform people around you of the importance of being respectful towards indigenous laws and history while visiting the sites. To create a space for yourself and for your community where you as an intersectional being can share your experiences as a aspiring environmentalist, as a nature enthusiast, or just as a general like advocacy leader for indigenous teachings, as well as POC liberation and to also promote nature-based learning. Thank you so much for tuning in. Chimigwech, all my relations. This episode has highlighted indigenous history, characteristics, significance, risks to Greenbelt regions, as well as outdoor experiences, hiking trails, POC-led routes, and waterfalls. If you like what you hear, check out our work at Shake Up the Establishment. You can find us on our website or Instagram to continue learning about important topics like environmental stewardship, social justice issues, and political accountability. That's S-H-A-K-E-U-P-T-H-E-E-S-T-A-B dot O-R-G. And find us under the same name on Instagram. To learn more about the Greenbelt, visit the Greenbelt Foundation online.